Hello, and welcome to The Solve Network. I'm Shane Borza, host of the podcast. Along with my co-founder, Benjamin Goss, we'd like to welcome you. Our mission is to provide solutions and create a network of experts for you to learn from. We hope this episode and expert helps you to learn, grow, and move forward. And now, on with the show. Hey, my name is James. I'm a lawyer who's always been interested in optimal human performance, and that's how I found Shane. If you're looking to upgrade your mental and physical fitness, then the Ultimate Performance Course is for you. It's the key to performing better at work, at home, and in all of life's challenges. I've also found it to be a great community of like-minded and supportive professionals. As Shane says, together, everyone accomplishes more. Want to have your ultimate performance or find out more about how to optimize your mind and body fitness? Contact me at shaneborza.com and see if the DIY or the group program would be best for you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Solve Network. My name is Shane, and along with Ben, my co-founder, we'd like to welcome you to the call. Today, we have a guest expert that I'm really excited to introduce named Lisa Bennett. And she and I just met because I was a part of her summit, which I'm sure we'll also talk about. But tonight, uh, she is going to talk about how you can make your money work for you. And she is the founder of Workforce Millionaire. She's also a financial literary coach. And she helps people learn how to create passive income and retire on their own terms so they can can live their dream life. So without further ado, I would like to hand it over to Lisa, who's going to give us a presentation and talk more about those things. Welcome to the show, Lisa Bennett. Thanks, Shane. It's good to talk to you again. So we get to actually talk about a money topic this time. We were talking about uh, health and wellness last time we got together, and my niche is actually helping people to create passive income so they can retire on their own terms and live out those wonderful dreams you have of what's gonna happen in the future. And there is actually a five-step decision process for creating passive income in your life. So I'm gonna cover step-by-step what you move through. First of all, there's something we're all carrying. It's not baggage, it's like our tool set. We've had this since we were young. And the first is your money archetype kind of like your personality type. It has your feelings around money, whether they're open feelings, closed feelings. There are eight different distinct archetypes. These are based on the work of Brent Kessel from his book called It's Not About the Money. Brent Kessel is a financial advisor in San Francisco. He's also a yogi. So he has both sides of the brain going. And about half of his book, he talks about some really wonderful things that you can do with the abundance of money because it's never about the money. But these archetypes include someone who is naturally a saver. That's me. Someone who is naturally an empire builder. An example of that would be Donald Trump. If you give Donald Trump a million dollars, he will make something bigger out of it. That's that's his money archetype. One would be a caregiver. Caregivers t- tend to take care of someone else with their money. Another person, maybe animals, maybe nonprofits, but they are giving their money to others. 
Um, there are eight of these archetypes. Do you, I don't, we don't really need to go through each one of them individually, but let's just say that the, um, the money archetype that you have had since you were young, and I'm happy to give anyone the money archetype survey. Um, let me know, Lisa at workforcemillionaire.com. I will send you the money archetype survey. It's actually really fun to do the survey with a partner or a friend or someone in your family um, to see your different attitudes towards money. But the second thing that you're carrying with you, so the first is how you act with money. And the second is your risk profile. How much are you willing to lose? You carry that with you. That may change more over time. It's pretty hard to change your money archetype without a really conscious effort at doing so. So I will always be a saver but I can take my money now and I could actually start building an empire with it. It's going to take some coaching for me, right? Because that's not what I naturally do with it, but that's possible for me. But my risk profile has been pretty consistent over time. Every financial advisor you ever go to is going to ask you this. I have two financial advisors. How much would you be willing to lose? Let's say the stock market took a dump. How much would you be willing to lose before you cash out and walk away with what's left. That's your risk profile. My number is 80%. That's a very high risk profile. And because my profile was so high, I was able to make riskier financial investments over time than my financial advisors would have. They probably had like 40 or 50% risk profiles. But your risk profile is really important when you want to get into the business of making passive income. So you're carrying your archetype, your risk profile with you all the time. And as you get older, financial advisors will advise you to have a lower risk profile because you're getting closer to end of life. You know where this money needs to go for the most part for the rest of your life. Don't take huge risks with it. You don't want to lose it all. They will advise you on that. Um, it's up to you what you do with your money. You may have a lower risk profile as you get older. But the third thing you carry with you are your stories. What stories did you have in your family when you were growing up? So Shane, my mom used to say a couple of things. Money doesn't grow on trees. So that was the, there's scarcity of money. And the second thing that she made really clear with us was, don't keep money in your pocket. It'll burn a hole in your pocket. This was her way of saying without saying it directly, that she didn't trust us to carry cash because we would waste it. So that had to be a story that my mom learned somewhere in her upbringing. That, that doesn't necessarily reflect on me and my siblings. So Shane, can you think of stories that you had when you were growing up around money? Yeah, it's funny, actually, I hadn't thought of this in years. And as soon as you said that, I could remember my dad it didn't matter what it was. It could be a car. It could be a tool. It could be anything. He's like, there's the name brand. And he's like, you never want to buy that because you're just paying for the name. And then there's the no name brand. And you never want to buy that because it's cheap and it's going to fall apart. He's like, you always got to buy the one in the middle. Wow. And so when I got older, I was always like, well, I can't buy the expensive one. I can't buy the cheap one. I always have to buy the one in the middle because that's what I was taught. Mm -hmm. That's how you do it. Interesting. That's a great story. I hadn't heard that one before. The people who are the money archetype that always buy the most expensive thing or the thing with the label on it that people will recognize, they are called the star 
the star money archetype. And you also see them posting on social media and their things going viral about how they're spending their money. This is the star archetype. Like, you're not going to catch me doing that. <laughs> it's just it's not part of my psyche. But that's a different uh, money archetype. But clearly your dad did not have the star money archetype. Uh, he, he was probably pretty conservative with his money. I mean, I'd have to guess, but he might have been either a, a, a guardian or a saver. That's just my guess. So abundance, scarcity, malice, joy is, is money, the root of all evil. That is an often misquoted verse from the Bible. It is the love of money is the root of all evil is actually what's, what's in the Bible. Um, is there joy behind? S some people, when I put on workshops, they have really joyous stories behind money and how, how wonderful the family got to do this or that together because there was enough money. And, and interestingly, some people have different money stories with a father than they have with a mother. The mother had a very different attitude toward money, and there might have even been strife in that story. Over uh, There are a lot of divorces caused over money, definitely. But um, to see if their money archetypes sort of work together, that's another good reason to take that money archetype survey, to find out if your money archetypes naturally work well together. So if you can imagine, if I was... Oh, I was raised just incidentally on, we had very little money when I was growing up. My mom was very good at balancing what money she had. And she did it on the back of an envelope that a bill had come in every month. She wrote down all the money coming in and all the money going out. And then she tied it out at the bottom. So this is a cash flow statement in business. And one day I watched her do this and I was 12. It tied down to $5. There was $5 left at the end of all the bills for that month. And the risk manager in me was saying, but what if I need to go to the dentist? Yesterday, I went to the dentist with a shattered molar. I mean, dental things happen, right? What if a tire blows on the car? What if my little 12-year-old mind had all these what ifs and it felt very insecure for me financially for us to live with a $5 buffer? And I decided then that I would become financially independent one day. I did not know what that meant. It was probably something that was said in a movie and I didn't know what it meant. But I knew that it had more air around it, around money, more space, right? Spaciousness and not this scratchy feeling that it could all fall apart with only $5 left. My mom did an amazing job with the money she had. But clearly, if you've read Kawasaki's book on um, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, she was caught in the hamster wheel of earning money, spending it, earning money, spending it, and having nothing left over. That is, that's not what I teach. So I teach people how to get out of the hamster wheel. So where do we begin? Let's say we, want, we know we want to leave the workforce early and we know we want to make passive income. So let's just define that. Passive income, you are asleep and money comes into your account. <laughs> That's pretty much what passive income is. So uh, my top two ways of teaching passive income are through real estate and through the stock market. Those are tested and true and well-known and reliable ways of making passive income. It doesn't mean you're working a side job that is active income, that is taking a lot of your energy. It doesn't mean, um, yeah, it doesn't mean Uncle Joe paying you under the table for some work you're doing on somebody's house. It means 
you have made some sort of financial decision and investment that is actually paying you money day by day or month by month, year by year, and you can, you can count on it. And it is a taxable event, just incidentally. None of this is illegal. <laughs> okay. So your vision. Let's say your vision is, I am a capable, confident investor. I meet a lot of people who say, you know, I know nothing about the stock market. I don't even know what it is. It sounds really emotional to me. Or I don't know anything about real estate investing, and it sounds like a real pain in the neck. Okay. So that's just the, I don't know. But if you want to become, you need a vision. You get to create your vision of what you're going to become. So let's say you want to become more literate about money in general, or you want to become a stock investor, or you want to become a real estate investor with passive income. So that's a vision. Or I have passive income of 20K a month. That's a vision. Well, you're going to need to budget. So the first step, I mean, feels like this is obvious, but the first step in creating the passive income, regardless of what stream it is, is to create a budget. What you have are expenses and you have income right now. And if your expenses are all the way up to your income, to carve out a piece for the passive income, the vision that you have, you're either going to have to pull it out of your existing budget or you're going to have to have more income coming in. It's kind of like losing weight. You know it's calories and it's energy, calories and energy. So you have, you're going to have expenses and you are going to need income. So what I did for the first um, stock market investing I did, that was just, I called it for fun. I called it like, a, like fun money. I took a percentage, a very small percentage, maybe 2% of my income and stuck it into a little brokerage account every month. And then I started learning about stock market investing, but I had to have that money to play with. And I started taking the advice of a really well-known mentor in stock market investing and putting little uh, bundles of stock into that stock brokerage account and watching it grow. It's that simple. I began doing that when my son was a baby. He's 20 years old now. So that's how I started with the stock market. Secondly is choose a model. So a bunch of so we can choose the stock market model or we could choose the real estate investing model. Do you have any preference on this, Shane? Does it, do you matter? Does it matter to your audience whether we talk about stock or real estate? Uh, it, it doesn't matter to me. We we've had people um, that have expressed interest in both. So if you have either uh, more information on one or the other or one that you're more interested in personally, I would say just go with that. Okay, uh, so this, this model is going to fit either one. So um, let's say real estate investing. There are single family homes, there are multifamily homes, duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes, and then you get into what's considered a different kind of investment when you have a home that fits more than four families. So let's say you decide you want to start real estate investing and uh, there's also commercial real estate. Decide where you're going to start. Most people are most comfortable starting with single family dwellings because that's what they know. 
easy to find and easy to figure out how to finance. You don't need special financing for it. So let's say, because you're familiar with single family dwellings, you would like to start there. That's your model. I'm going to buy a single family dwelling and it's going to be a real estate investment. I'm not going to live there. You could also buy a duplex and say, I'm going to live in half of the duplex. And then my renters in the other half are going to end up paying my mortgage payment. And that'll give me enough breathing room that I can start saving money to do other kinds of investing. That's another way to do your model. Um, there, there is a model where you do all the work. So you know that you have to choose the location, you know, what city, what state, what country. I have not invested in other countries. I'm only invested in the U.S. So what state would you like to invest in? What city would you like to invest in? What are the decision points behind all of that? Um, how large a house would you like to invest in? And then let's say you've decided all that. And let's say you've found one. You're going to need a realtor. Realtors are worth their weight in gold. Don't ever bypass the realtor, my opinion. You are going to need a lender. And I also know some wonderful lenders through the work that I've done, the workshops that I've done. And then if you're not going to live there, right? And let's say it's a city you don't live in. What are you going to need? You're going to need a property manager. So these are like your triumvirate. Who's going to help you buy it, the money you're going to buy it with, and who's going to manage it? That's your triumvirate for uh, real estate investment. And that would be true with the other models as well of real estate. You're going to need someone to help you find it, someone to finance it, and then someone to manage it. So you've chosen a model. Let's say you've chosen a single family dwelling. You've chosen the state you want it to be in because you just think it's a wonderful up and coming state. I can tell you both coasts tend to be saturated. It doesn't mean there are no deals in California and no deals in New York. It means that it tends to be saturated and you might look longer. I just looked for over a year to find the house I just bought in California in November. So I, you know, I, I had a, I had the ability to wait. Now you're going to evaluate, right? You're evaluating now all the houses that come available in that area. Someone's coming in, hello. Evaluate all the homes that fit your model. So single family dwellings, and maybe you chose it based on its, its bedrooms and bathrooms. Maybe you chose it based on the neighborhood it's in. Maybe you chose it based on the price. Maybe you wanted a house that was less than five years old. Whatever your criteria are for that model that you chose, now you're going to evaluate what's available. And you might also have time as part of that. I didn't have time for that last house that I bought. I, I, a, a little bit of time crunch. I promised my son, who, it, who was a freshman in college at the time, that I was going to buy him a house. He's a business major that he could be the property manager for, and I would pay him to do that. So this is his first real job. I'm really proud of him. He's done a great job. So I knew that I needed to buy it within the time he's in college, but I didn't have that much of a crunch for exactly when to buy it. The market in that particular town was a bit weird in the last year because it is right next to a town that burned down. And immediately the real estate in this town went up 20% within like a month of the, the town next door burning down because 
people were piling into it. There was nowhere to live. People were piling into this town. So I waited for that to calm down and for a good opportunity to arise with a four bedroom house that was close to relatively close to campus. Those were my criteria. You know, something you might want to know that is helpful and which my realtor in that area told me, there's a crime map of pretty much every city. That is something I strongly suggest you overlay on the region, on the town, and attempt to buy a home that is not in the middle of the crime map. It will show areas of town that are like red, orange, whatever, or it'll show little icons that show what kind of crime is going on in the town. As you can imagine, in a college town, there is more crime closer to campus <coughs> because you have more of the population and more of the young population just really packed close to campus. Anyway, I did overlay the crime map on that town when I was making my decision. So that's a really good tip. Just, uh, just type in crime map and city name. You know, Google's your friend in most cases. So go looking on Google for the crime map. You'll probably find it. So you're evaluating houses. You're evaluating single-family dwellings based on the price, any changes that need, need to be made to it. I tried to buy something that didn't need modification because I just personally didn't have the patience for that at the time, and I wanted people to move in immediately. My son had people in that house within two weeks. I was so proud of him. Two weeks. What a good boy. And uh, I knew I could get a good rate on the loan. That wasn't a problem. And I knew that it's a town, I had already evaluated what rentals were making in the town and my realtor was happy to tell me what re rentals were making in the town. So I knew what the income would be. I knew what my cash flow would be from that. And just, just as a side note, when you're in real estate, there's a lot, of, a lot more numbers involved than just your cash flow. If we were just talking about the stock market, we would talk about how the stock is appreciating over time and any dividends. That's pretty straightforward, right? That math is pretty straightforward. The difference between what you buy it at and what you sell it at and the dividends, those are how you make money in the stock market. But housing is different, especially in the US. Did you know that not every country in the world is going to give you a 30 year fixed rate loan to buy a house? Did you know that? Did you know we're really special in that regard? It is an amazing bonus in the United States that we're still able to do that. So you have depreciation on the house going over 27 and a half years when you buy a rental home. You have appreciation of the value of the home, right? You are building equity. You have some tax benefits based on the fact that you are paying a mortgage interest. Let's see, you are making income, you are writing off um, improvements you make on the house to the cost of the house. There's all sorts of numbers. I give this all to my tax accountant and she does it for me. I honestly don't do those numbers, but it is a real benefit in the United States to be in the real estate market. If, if I could just make a blanket statement that way, it really is we're blessed here with the way our, our laws are set up to be in real estate investing. So you've evaluated houses, you've evaluated single family dwellings, you've looked at so many houses. I did them all on WhatsApp with my realtor. I was the first client he ever did walkthroughs with with WhatsApp because we were in lockdown part of that time. So um, he walked through homes with me 
And he does it all the time now, but he walked through homes with me. He was walking through the house, showing me, and he would give me the details on the house. The guy is a genius. He used to be in the construction industry. He knew he could look at a roof and tell me when it needs to be replaced. Guy is, he was just, he was gold. So you've evaluated homes. I asked for his opinion. Gabe, would you buy this house? Gabe, would you make any improvements? Gabe, is this the highest priced house in this neighborhood? What do you, what's your opinion? He didn't give me his opinions if I asked him. So they're not in the business of giving you their opinions on the houses, but if you ask them, they have opinions. So you've evaluated all these homes now and let's say you pick one. <coughs> so you buy it. So there is the escrow process when it comes to homes. Of course, that doesn't exist in the stock market. So in the stock market, I strongly suggest that you buy stock long that means you're buying it with cash. You own the shares of stock. You're not doing puts and calls and stock options and all that stuff. You're buying long and you're holding. So, <clears throat> but with the house, you're going to buy it. There's going to be an escrow process. There are a lot of people running around California right now buying homes with cash. I don't know if it's that way where you are, Shane, but there's a huge influx of people from other countries that are buying homes with cash. Um, I suppose that would appeal to the sellers of the homes if they needed cash fast, right? So perhaps they're buying another home somewhere else and they need to turn, flip the money and get it into another house fast. Um, personally, that wouldn't appeal to me. If someone says, oh, well, I want to buy your home and I'm, I have a cash offer. Like, I don't care about your cash offer. I just care about uh, the price on the house and um, the people in the neighborhood. I actually care about the people in my neighborhoods. So I like to make sure I get people in the homes that are going to like, that are going to, that care. Um, and you can't discriminate. There's no discrimination in buying and selling homes. But uh, just because someone offers you cash, and, and you're not, I'm not suggesting that you're going to offer cash. If you're just getting into the real estate market, you're not going to be offering an all cash buy of a house. That's not even recommended. But if someone offers you or someone outbids you on a house because they have an all cash offer, nothing you can do about it. It's nothing. So you just go on to the next house. I got outbid on three houses before I got that one in my son's college town. And I just had to choke it down. Once I couldn't even understand why I had, I, they had not taken my offer. Um, so it is what it is. It's almost like a little game. So you just figure out if, if you won that move. So you buy the house and now you have a month of leeway after you go through escrow, you have a month, essentially you've paid for the first month of your mortgage to get some people in the house. So you're going to, so I suggest you find your property manager before escrow closes. If you can do that and say, Hey, I'm in escrow. I'm looking for good property managers in the area. Ask your realtor. It's not like realtors don't know stuff. Ask your realtor what they suggest for property managers and start talking to them. I've, I've posted a, um, a, on my blog, I posted an article about my decision process around property managers. I got really lucky with a house I bought in Wisconsin I had been recommended by the realtor to this one company and I called them, left the messages, told them the number to call me on. They called me on the wrong number. Finally, I get hold of them. They said, oh yeah, we've been so busy. And then they started describing their business to me, right? And they told me, yeah, we have five accountants. Yeah, we have a whole staff of accountants and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, 
really? So what's the story here? So what they're really telling me is we care a lot about the money transactions in this business. And we aren't getting back to prospective uh, customers rapidly. And we aren't paying attention when you're letting us know what your phone number is. And so it felt to me that their vibe was more around business than around taking care of a home that has people in it. <clears throat> then I called randomly um, a small property manager who was in that town. He answered the phone himself. Hi. And I told him where the house was. He goes, oh, yeah, I know where that is. I know exactly where that is. He said, I have another house on that street that I'm managing. He said, yeah, the first thing I would do is I'd make sure that the grass got cut one more time before the snow comes. And I do the snow plowing myself to try to save um, the homeowners some money. And I do a lot of the little uh, fix-its around the homes. And yeah, I'm sure you have people in there who are like in graduate school. So it's like the guy understood, right? He got the picture. I said, yeah, you're hired. I said, well, wait, can you give me the report at the end of the year that I give my tax account? And he's, yeah, of course. And, and he does. So that's, those are, he is the best property manager I've ever had. Occasionally I send him email and say, do you need anything from me, Josh? No, we got it. Everything's fine. Great. Thank you. It's, that one's been the least headache for me of any of the properties I've ever bought. So definitely call around. Don't just go by the referral of your property of your realtor to find a property manager, but definitely call that one and then call around and because you might not know anyone in that town, right? You might have picked this town randomly because it's a really good town to invest in. So call around and get the vibe for the property managers. Remember, it's not the words, it's the music. So listen to the music and what they're telling you and get a good one because you want to be in relationship with this person. And now ultimately your final decision is, are you going to hold it or sell it? I get offers every single month. I probably have a letter here on my table somewhere from someone offering to buy my home in Wisconsin, the home in Oklahoma City. Oh my goodness, when I'm renting my home in Sunnyvale, California, I get so many people calling me, telling me they want to buy the home. No, no, I'm not selling the home. So decide. You know, maybe it makes sense for you to own, own the home for five or 10 years for the taxes and for the appreciation. And, um, and then you actually want to sell it and you're going to like upgrade to a larger house or something like that. So that was part of your vision and your intention. My vision was just to diversify my portfolio into real estate and hold it. So my intention is to hold it as far as I know, my kids will inherit all the properties unless I give it away to a nonprofit or something. But so my, my intention is to hold and my intention in the stock market, unless the company starts to choke, is to hold. And in that way, your property is appreciating, your mortgage is decreasing, you are writing off the initial investment over 27 and a half years and you are taking the money that you're using to improve the house in any way and writing it against the house that comes out on your taxes. So there's great benefits to, and plus you get some cash flow. Great benefits to owning real estate in the United States. Um, so those are the main steps. And that applies to a lot of things in life, Shane. If I were to actually think about it, it applies to a lot of things. You're gonna evaluate, get your right people together 
and you're going to buy and then you're going to sell or hold. That happens in many different kinds of transactions. So thank you all for joining us again, and we'll see you on the next call. Scene one, Apple, take one. Hi, I'm Shane Borza, your content creator coach. I have two books on filmmaking, Film Notes, where you learn to write, direct, and produce, and the Film Notes Workbook, where you can learn checklists and paperwork to streamline creating your content. Available at shaneborza.com. I also have filmmaker resources like the Paperwork Bundle with over 300 documents, the Sound Effects Bundle with almost 3,000 files, and the Music Bundle featuring 900 tracks of all genres. Want to build your professional credits? Become an associate producer and get listed on IMDb. Let me help you get your art out into the world. Scene one, Apple, take one. Thank you for joining us on this episode of The Solve Network. These interviews are from our web series of the same name. Want to watch? Head over to YouTube and search for The Solve Network. If you have questions, you can reach out to me at shaneborza.com. On behalf of my co-founder, Benjamin Goss, we're glad you're a part of the network and hope you're finding solutions. If you need solutions, please reach out.